I'm excited to be starting off our series in Mark. Uh, as a church, we're going to be going through the entire book of Mark, uh, what, looking at what Jesus did, uh, why that matters to us today. Um, and I'm sure you guys looked, see I'm doing eight verses, right? And then you look in your Bible and there's like 40 pages of Mark. Uh, it's, yeah, it's going to take a while. Um, Mark is the shortest gospel, uh, but if we want to give each passage its fair time, we're probably going to be in Mark for over a year. Um, we'll probably take some breaks, Christmas, maybe Easter, maybe some other breaks if we're feeling like it. Um, but if we're going to spend this much time in, in this book, then I should probably start us with an introduction on what the book is. So I'm briefly going to ask three questions about Mark. Who, when, then what? So this book is called The Gospel According to Mark. But why, like, why Mark? Nowhere in the book do we see that it's signed by Mark. Um, and even if it is written by a guy named Mark, who cares, right? Who is Mark? The name Mark comes up eight times in the New Testament. Um, unfortunately, the name Mark in the first century Roman world is basically the same as having the last name Martin in 21st century Elmira. Um, it's basically impossible to tell if these are all the same Mark or if these are a few different Marks. However, I can say with confidence that at least one of these, uh, the one mentioned in 1 Peter, is the Mark who wrote our book. So let's look at that passage, right? Um, Peter, this is one of Jesus' apostles, writing, She who is of Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Mark is obviously close with Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples. If we're getting our stories from this Mark, then we're getting our stories from a guy who's been involved in almost every part of Jesus' ministry. But again, there's like a million marks. So how do we know that this is actually our mark? Um, we can look at Papias, who is an old church guy, like from around 100 AD, who was actually alive to catch the tail end of some of the apostles' lives. So uh, especially John. He says, uh, the elder, and he's talking about John here, um, like James and John from Jesus' apostles, used to say, and this is, he's quoting John, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory, and there's a lot more. Um, so we can see from, from here that our author of Mark is the one from 1 Peter. And as a close friend and interpreter for Peter, he's getting his stories from, about Jesus from the best source on earth available at the time. So that's who wrote it. Now when? The book of Mark is almost certainly the very first gospel written. It was definitely written before Luke and Matthew because they both seem to have a copy of Mark in front of them while writing their gospels. We constantly see quotes and passages pretty much being ripped from Mark into these other two books. This gives us extra confidence because we know that these two authors are really careful about how to represent Jesus' time on earth. So we know that they both trusted Mark and that gives us extra confidence in, in Mark. In terms of the actual timeline, it was written between 55 and 70 AD, with most scholars agreeing that it came at the end or second half of that window. So if we want to like conceptualize that to our time, let's compare that to like what it would be like for us today to read about something in that distance. If Mark wrote his book at the end of that window, so like the longest time since Jesus was on earth, it would be quite similar to someone today writing about Terry Fox. Terry Fox died in 1981, and pretty much everyone here would at least know somebody if they actually aren't old enough themselves, to remember Terry Fox in his last year of life. 
if Mark was written a bit earlier, then the equivalent distance to us would be like Freddie Mercury. Right? If we want to draw a parallel, Freddie's bandmates are still touring with Queen, and you know, at the time of Mark, Jesus' apostles were still actively doing ministry across the world. And if Mark was written at the earliest date, it's about the same distance to us as Princess Diana. So when Mark is writing this, he isn't writing about some historical figure like when we would read about like Albert Einstein or Winston Churchill. He's writing about a guy that a large fraction of the population will still remember being alive with a ton of eyewitnesses. This isn't a historical fiction, right? These are real stories about what happened from a guy who saw it all presented to thousands of people who would know if he was lying. So my last little bit about Mark, what is Mark about? Compared to other gospel writers, Mark is intently focused on the things that Jesus did. It's a fast-paced book with very little breathing room from one act to the next. Mark uses the word immediately 41 times, quickly jump-cutting from one miracle to the next. Mark wants to show us Jesus in action and gets to realize just how wild and crazy those three years would have been. Mark is also a book that asks a lot of questions and doesn't provide a ton of answers. At least every chapter, we get either an example of the disciples completely missing the point of who Jesus is, or we get other people directly questioning and doubting Jesus, or we get Jesus himself being coy about the work that he's doing. Mark is full of skeptics of all varieties, and you get the feeling that almost no one understood what was going on with Jesus until after he'd been raised again. This probably also captured the mood at the time, right? Mark is the very first definitive written record of Jesus' time on earth. At this point, you know, 30, 40 years later, tons of people had heard about Jesus, but as eyewitnesses were starting to die, there must have been an uncertainty for people who, who were hearing about Jesus for the first time, right? Whether they could trust these second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand oral accounts of Jesus' life. But while the majority of the book of Mark and its audience are asking questions, we do get answers. And like a Jeopardy game, Mark gives us the answers before he asks the questions. He answers three categories of skeptics in the first eight verses. The Israelites, John the Baptist, and the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And provides clarity to what looks like confusion for the rest of the book. And as we talk about these skeptics, I realize each of you will identify with this differently. Uh, some of you are like me, right? A self-identified skeptic. A friend will tell me a cool fact, and my first instinct is to Google it because I think that's like too cool to be true, right? Um, others of you wouldn't call yourself skeptics at all, but I do think this message will be entirely relevant. Um, most, I don't know if I can quite say all, but most sin or deliberate sin has some skepticism underlying it, right? Remember the very first sin. Adam and Eve were prompted to sin. How? With the devil prying on their natural skeptical beliefs about God and what he'd said to them. We're all sinners, and we all have some skepticism in us. So let's first consider the Israelites. What would it have been like to be an Israelite around the time of Jesus? You would have heard tons of stories about being God's chosen people, but it probably wouldn't feel like that. The Romans took over your promised land so long ago that you don't even remember anyone who's alive before that happened. You look at your Hebrew Bible, and for most of your people's history, you've been adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. But for 400 years now, there's been nothing. The last prophet God gave you was Malachi, who promised that Elijah would return. 
But Jewish leaders will soon be saying that, and this is a quote from Jewish uh, rabbis, when Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So surely you'd feel skeptical at this point. Has God forgotten the promises he made? Has God just like totally abandoned Israel? Is this, is what I believe here true at all? And in 2021, you could easily have the same thoughts, right? You know, is this revelation stuff ever going to happen? Has God just totally abandoned us? So we get to the arrival of John the Baptist. Mark introduces him with these quotes. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark, although just mentioning Isaiah here, is actually combining and quoting two different prophecies from Malachi and Isaiah, both of which are fulfilled in the same way. Uh, This isn't a mistake or a misquote. Combining prophecies is something that Jesus will do a few times later in Mark with other prophecies. So let's look at the first part of this prophecy. It's quoting Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In this, Malachi is sharing words given to him by God, promising a messenger that's coming before me, right? You see, at the end of the first sentence right there, me? God is saying, before me is coming a preparer. Any Jew reading this would, have also, would also know that Malachi 3.1 isn't the only verse uh, Malachi, in Malachi about this messenger. They'd also know that at the end of Malachi, uh, he finishes off his book and basically finishes off all Jewish prophecy with, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. With Mark's really quick quote of Malachi, we get a lot of things, right? We get that John the Baptist is the promised Elijah with the associated Malachi 4-5. Uh, we get that John is going to directly precede God, literally coming to earth. We see that in both Malachi verses. He will prepare the way before me. And I will send you, Elijah, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Finally, with this quote of Malachi, we also see what John is going to do, right? Verse 6 says, He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their father. The second half of the prophecy, the one with Isaiah, is referring to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare, a way of, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and all the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This prophecy is using the metaphor of road building. So like in ancient times, when a king would come and visit a small town, often the town would rebuild their junky road, leading to their village to impress the king. This would take tons of work, leveling hills and filling valleys to make the road as straight and flat as possible for the king to ride. Um, And so those horses aren't just dying. Um, I was just up in Algonquin, and driving up there, once you get north of Barrie into the Canadian Shield, it reminds me of this passage, right? You'll be constantly driving past these huge granite rock walls, the result of years of labor with tons of dynamite, excavating 
tens of thousands of cubic meters of solid rock just so that every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. What Isaiah is saying here is these people will need a ton of work to be ready for my arrival. If their hearts are rock, then John the Baptist is the dynamite. Let's see what he does. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's hard to overstate how radical John was. Yes, he dresses and eats weird, but that's just the cherry on top. John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This seems totally normal to someone who grew up in the church, but to first century Jews, this is unheard of. Firstly, Jewish baptism was something prescribed for like really specific instances, like when you came in contact with a dead body or you ate roadkill. Um, the only people who needed to be baptized, regardless of this, their situation, were non-Jews, like foreigners, who wanted to join the Jewish faith. Now John is saying that every Jew, regardless of their situation, should be baptized. And this baptism isn't just for some ritual cleanliness. It's a baptism showing repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This would have been a big departure from how Jews at the time were used to forgiveness for sins. They would have seen sacrifices at the temple as a primary way that they get forgiven. John's preaching and baptism is warming the Jews up for Jesus. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins are all things that are going to be closely associated with Jesus' ministry. This is what Malachi refers to when he says a messenger will prepare the way. And what Isaiah re refers to when he talks about leveling mountains and filling valleys. So John is asking the Jews to perform a ritual meant for outsiders in order to provide something that wasn't supposed to be available to any, by anything other than sacrifice. How do you think that went over? Uh, usually this goes over poorly in the Bible, but this time it goes awesome, right? And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Put yourself in the skeptical Israelites' sandals. You've been waiting for a prophet since Malachi, and then you hear that the prophet which Malachi promised is out in the wilderness, like your ancestors were during their exodus from Egypt, doing a radical new ritual that you can join in on. Wouldn't you at least want to check it out? Unlike Jesus, who had to be rejected by the Israelites, John seems to have been quite well received. Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually writes a lot more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. Josephus talks about the, quote, many crowds being greatly moved by John's words. He says that Herod, another quote, feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion. And yet, for Christians, despite the massive influence John had at the time, he gets a small mention at the start of each gospel and then drops in for a few verses here and there later. Why is that? John the Baptist is just the messenger preparing the way. Picture the Canadian shield again. You see incredibly dense and lush forests perched on top of massive foundations of rock. The Old Covenant here is the granite bedrock, right? It's massive, it's sprawling, it's ancient, it's solid. 
The new covenant, Jesus, is the forest on top, right? It's fresh, it's diverse, it's new, it's full of life. John, John's the four inches of soil in between them. John sits on top of the rock, the final layer before new life, but he's not a part of the rock. The soil is a precursor to the forest. The roots dig deep into him, but he's not a part of the forest. Starting next week with Mark, uh, Mark is going to shift from the dirt to the trees, because John is really just a transition from the old into the new. And yet, John the Baptist, the last prophet before Jesus, was the answer to the skeptical Jew who asked, has God abandoned us? No, God hadn't abandoned them, and he hasn't abandoned us in 2021 either. God came through on his promises from Malachi and Isaiah. Jesus may or may not come again during your lifetime, but you have an eternity afterwards to see his word come true. Now, from the Israelite skeptic to someone you wouldn't expect to be a skeptic at all, right? The main character in this text, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, Not recorded in Mark, so I'm not spoiling any future sermons here. Uh, In Luke 7, we hear of John the Baptist's skepticism from jail. Uh, And John, this is a quote from uh, Luke 7, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Even John the Baptist was unsure. Why was he unsure? If we look at Jesus' response, we get a clue, right? Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. John is a classic modern skeptic. He needs evidence. He was expecting lots from Jesus. We can see that at the end of our passage, right? Uh, He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is a super popular and mighty guy, right? And yet Jesus is supposed to be so much mightier than him that they aren't even in the same conversation. Undoing someone's sandals back in the day there was the most undignified job. It was something that even Jewish slaves weren't allowed to do because it would be too degrading for them. So we don't really do that today. um, But if there was a modern equivalent— I think it's probably like plunging someone else's toilet, right? It's gross. It's kind of degrading. But what, he, what, what we're saying here is John is not even worthy of the honor of plunging Jesus's toilet. And then John mentions the baptism of the, Ho- baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? He must have been excited to see what it's like to have the Holy Spirit just given out to whoever wants it. So I'm sure John at this point is thinking, man, The amount of people who came out to see me was insane, right? Imagine how many more are going to come out for Jesus and how radically changed they're all going to be. It'll only be a few months until every person in Israel will recognize, you know, Jesus is God on earth and we should all celebrate. And yet, at the time of his questioning, he's been in jail for a little while. He's probably missed the majority of Jesus' miracles and his jailers aren't coming back from a sermon to see Jesus completely transformed. Herod hasn't realized that he's in the wrong and set him free. John is growing skeptical, right? Is this how things should look if God is literally on earth? Was I wrong? 
there's always been a spectrum of what people need to prove something to them. On the one side, you have being trusting, you know, and believing what anyone says without taking any evidence. Then there's the other side of being skeptical and not believing anything without overwhelming evidence. You know, John has found himself on the skeptical side. Since the Enlightenment in the 17th century, we as a Western society have continued to migrate farther and farther towards skepticism. You can tell that we're conditioned that way because of the way we react to that spectrum, right? Being too trusting is gullible and naive, while being skeptical is the educated and smart response. But I do want to challenge that. Skepticism can be just as foolish. Let's look at skepticism taken to an extreme. What happens if you're so skeptical that you start to reject legitimate evidence? One group that is well known for this are flat earthers. People who literally believe that the earth is not a sphere in space, but rather a flat disk. In order to believe that, you have to reject what NASA and what a bunch of other space agencies say, and a ton of independent scientists. You have to reject experiments which can demonstrate the curvature of the earth. You have to say that tens of thousands of hours from the ISS are, I don't know, doctored or, or shot on some sort of stage. You have to reject so much solid evidence. Many prominent atheist figures have made claims that there's no evidence for God, and that therefore we're gullible for believing in him. Dan Barker is a prominent pro-atheism author and speaker. In his book, Losing Faith in Faith, says, I am an atheist because there is no evidence for the existence of God. That should be all that needs to be said. No evidence, no belief. So, let's return to John the Baptist. Not unlike Dan, he's looking for evidence. Was he wrong for asking these questions, for being unsure about Jesus? No, in fact, Jesus commends him right after this. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Where John goes right is that he accepts the evidence that his friends have seen. He isn't so cynical and skeptical that he rejects them, but he acknowledges that the things Jesus is doing are amazing and spectacular, even if he hasn't been able to see them himself. What Jesus is saying is, asking questions is okay, but don't be so skeptical that you reject the valid evidence. So what's our evidence? Well, there's a lot, but one piece that I want to talk about today is the very book that we're starting our series on. To be an atheist, to say that there's no evidence for God, you have to completely reject the book of Mark. Because what Mark is doing is how Jesus responded to John the Baptist, right? Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Mark is telling us what he and what Peter have seen and heard. Mark is writing in a time where it could be easily found out if he was lying. Mark's writings are used as references by other careful collectors of stories about Jesus. Mark's source, Peter, and the other disciples of Jesus were so convinced by what happened to them that the rest of their lives were lived entirely focused on sharing the stories of Jesus. Mark's gospel is a gift to show us the amazing life of Jesus and is meant to be a tool to strengthen our faith. So if you're unsure about God, whether he exists, or whether Jesus was who he says he was, that's okay. John was too. But please don't reject the evidence. The final skeptic we move on to are the witnesses of Jesus who hold 
too low of a view of Jesus. Mark is absolutely littered with people who see Jesus and see his miracles, but show that they completely misunderstand who Jesus is. Uh, I'm going to go through some examples of some of the doubt he gets from crowds. So there's not a chance I'm going to read all these, but uh, 2 verse 7, he says, After forgiving the paralyzed man, um, so like the guy gets dropped in through the roof, uh, some of the people in the back are saying, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or maybe uh, 623. He's teaching in the synagogue, and the crowd's like, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And then even his disciples get a lot of stuff wrong in this book, right? Uh, 441. After calming the sea, the disciples get together and they're like, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Or, uh, you know, 10, 37, 38. Some of the disciples uh, come to Jesus and ask to sit at his right and left hand in heaven. And Jesus literally just says to them, you do not know what you're asking. With so many people missing who Jesus was, Mark knows that his account might also lead people to miss who Jesus was. People, naturally skeptical, don't want to believe that they are witnessing God actually in front of them. They'd rather rationalize it to something less spectacular. And even today, people constantly do this with Jesus, right? They'll reduce him to a a great teacher, good guy. So Mark gives us the opening line of his whole book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This line is crystal clear. It's meant to provide an anchor while you're reading the rest of the stories. Even when Mark is writing down the actions of skeptical people, he knows you'll have read this line, stating clearly that Jesus is both the Christ and the Son of God. Both these terms are quite worn out for Christians who've been going to church a long time. You know, we've said Jesus Christ so much that it starts sounding like a last name, right? Like his parents were Mary and Joseph Christ. Um, (laughs) Let's be reminded that Christ— means the anointed one, right? A title referred to, referring to the promised Messiah that the Jews had, and a title which was already in heavy use at the time of Mark's writing. To explain what it means, I like how David Garland, a biblical scholar and used to be the president of Baylor University, puts it. Many characters in Mark's gospel will use the title, but have no idea what it means for Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ. As the story unfolds, it becomes plain that one must throw out all preconceptions of what Christ means. Only after Jesus' death and resurrection can one understand the momentous nature of the news that he is God's Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, and he fulfills the prophecies and promises by dying for our sin and then being raised again. That's what it means to be Christ. Mark also uses the term Son of God. This term is saying Jesus is a divine being, right? He's not a normal human. He's something much, much greater. And how does Mark know this? You can see at the end uh, of Mark, Jesus makes this claim himself. Chapter 14, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. This claim is staggering, right? And how you react to this claim 
is the most important reaction in your entire life. Are you like the high priest here, skeptical and not buying it? Or are you like Mark, who can confidently say that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God? Because that decision should permeate every facet of your life, right? Either we have a relationship with the living God, or we're deluded. Either there's hope after our time on earth, or there's nothing. Either there's purpose in this life, or life is meaningless. And I want to challenge those of us who do see Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. Have you allowed that to really permeate your life? Skepticism towards God is almost as natural to society as air is, and we often absorb it without even noticing. Like with Adam and Eve, this skepticism can be a barrier between what you believe and how you act. So I hope that your faith can be encouraged and strengthened by Mark as he combats our skepticism and shows us that God hasn't abandoned us, that there is real evidence for our faith, and that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Uh, let me close in prayer. prayer. God, uh, thank you so much for Mark's gospel. Um, I ask that you make his words real to us as we start our time in Mark, and I pray that you would replace the skepticism in our hearts with confidence in you. Amen.